Kinans are the 1,000 or more religious hymns which are part of the heritage of Ismailis in South Asia. What you have just heard is part Ginan and part song. And it's one way that these hymns, which are assumed to date as far back as the 13th century, are being popularized today. This song is being performed by a band called Kayal. Its members include a doctor, a lawyer, a banker, a professor, and a fashion designer. They live across Europe, North America, and Africa. Kayal is like a microcosm of the South Asian Ismaili community today. The story of the Ginans is the story of this community and its evolution over the past 800 years. This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. Ismailis from western regions of South Asia find their origins in Gujarat, Sindh and Punjab. Their ancestors belonged to various castes such as the Loana and Bhatia communities who found themselves drawn to the teachings of Muslim saints known as peers or sayids. According to community tradition, Ismaili peers were sent from Persia by the Imams, or spiritual leaders, to spread knowledge of who the Ismaili Imams are and the notion of the Imam as the guide to spiritual enlightenment. They did this through Ginans, and the people that accepted these teachings came to be known as Satpanthis, those who followed the Satpanth, or the true path. It's something Ali Asani, Murray A. Albertson Professor of Middle Eastern Studies and Professor of Indo-Muslim and Islamic Religion and Cultures at Harvard University, has been studying his entire career. Well, I was always 
aware of the Ginans, but I started taking them very seriously uh, when I went to Harvard as an undergraduate. And I was studying world religions. And my mentor, uh, Professor Anne-Marie Schimmel, who worked a lot on Islamic mysticism and Sufi poetry, was very interested in the Ginans. She was, without doubt, one of the foremost uh, uh, scholars of Islamic mysticism in the 20th century. And she was remarkable for um, not only her insights into Muslim societies, but also for her command of language. So she knew Arabic, Persian, Urdu, Turkish, Sindhi, and she studied poetry because she felt that poetry, and I would include the Ginans in there, are a very interesting way in which you get insight into a community or a society. She would often talk about this Swiss-German philosopher, Johann Herder, who used to say that you can understand a people better through their poetic traditions than their miserable political histories. Professor Asani joined me from London. Our discussion focuses on a paper he wrote called The Ginans Betwixt Satpanthi Scripture and Ismaili Devotional Literature. The first part of this episode is about the first 600 years or so of the history of Khojas, one of several groups who followed the Satpanth from the 12 or 1300s to the 1800s. Each Satpanthi group followed a particular leader. The Khojas followed a peer called Sadardin, who is believed to have lived in the 14th century. It was Pir Sadardin who gave the title Khoja to his followers. He composed more than 200 Ginans, which played a central role in Khoja's daily prayer rituals. The term Ginan itself indicates their function because the term Ginan comes from this word Gyan, which means knowledge, a knowledge that is spiritually transformative. The peers, the composer, are asking you to listen to the Ginans, which are filled with light, uh, which are filled with enlightenment, and that when you recite them, because of that enlightenment, you will feel happiness, you will become ecstatic. The Piras and Sayyids were of Persian origin in terms of their ethnicity, but they acculturated to the local environment, co-opting local language and symbols in the Ginans. Well, first of all, the languages are all Indic, and then because they're sung, they're always recited in Indian ragas, part of the Hindustani raga system. Uh, and then the uh, frameworks that they use to... Uh, to talk about the imam, who the imam is, why the imam is the true guide to what they call the true path, the satpant or the path to the truth, is all done within an Indic framework, the frameworks that are indigenous to South Asia. So, for instance, while talking about the imams being in, in the West and living in Iran in this Western region of the world, they at the same time also talk about the imams within 
for example, what's called a Vaishnavite framework that is connecting the notion of the imams, specifically with the notion of the avatars of Vishnu. Vishnu is said to have taken on different avatars, and the peers connect the 10th, the coming avatara, the Messiah avatara, to, in fact, the figure of the imams. One of the earliest kinans called the Das avatara actually uses that as its main theme. The peers' use of local religious frameworks to explain Islamic concepts was not unique in the context of South Asian Islam. For example, from the 17th century onwards, the Das Avatara framework was popularly used by Muslim authors of Bengali epics to represent the figure of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his progeny, as the 10th Avatara of Vishnu. So by equating the concept of Avatara with the Islamic concept of Nabi, or Prophet, they presented Avatars of Vishnu as prophets who preceded the Prophet Muhammad. The peers went beyond simply co-opting local deities to their cause. They also used language found in revolutionary movements of the time. Movements that resisted authority based on rituals or knowledge of texts in Sanskrit or Arabic or Persian, which were inaccessible to ordinary people. For example, if you're lower caste or you're a woman, these scriptural traditions excluded you. So, but these counter movements like the Sant and the Bhakti movement are very inclusive. So it says you don't need to be a highly educated person to get salvation. You can be a woman and you can still get salvation so long as you follow the right path. The religious systems in India, as in I think in any other part of the world, are hierarchical. And in the Indic context, you know, they are based on uh, the, the caste system, uh, which is quite rigid. The Brahmins, who are supposed to be the priests, you know, will control rituals, uh, and you get salvation um, by performing the correct rituals, but you can't perform them if you're not a Brahmin. Similarly, within an Islamic case, interpreting Quran, Hadith, making judgments, is all controlled by the Qazi and the Mullah, uh, because they claim this scriptural uh, authority and scriptural knowledge, very much like the Brahmins do. And so that would mean that ordinary people who don't know Arabic or who don't know Persian, there's no hope for you because you don't have any knowledge and you have to rely on these authorities who have power over the scripture. And so when you place the Ginans within that context, you can see the Ginans are, in fact, resistance to uh, hierarchies of knowledge and authority which are seen as oppressive. And in fact, these are seen as discourses of liberation, both, I think, in terms of social liberation, but also um, a spiritual liberation. And I would say also personally empowering, because these traditions talk about that the divine exists not outside somewhere, it's not controlled by anybody, but the divine actually exists within each person's heart which means that actually the individual is important because every individual has this divine spark. 
and so very empowering for people who are who feel oppressed. Prakash means divine light. It's a ginan by Pir Shams from the 14th century and seeks to guide the individual from one stage of spiritual progress to the next with the goal of attaining the vision of the Lord within one's own self. The central theme is attaining spiritual bliss through repeating Sata Shabada, which means the true word or name. This ginan is recited by a lady called Shama Judah. And one other sort of discourse that you find in the Ginans that's very powerful, but that's also countercultural, is the Sufi discourse, because forms of Islamic mysticism, uh, when they talk about how does one get knowledge of God, also have this notion of the individual, every individual can be uh, empowered to undertake the spiritual path and connect to God on an individual basis rather than legalistic discourses of Islam or ritualistic discourses of Islam. So the Ginans use also this language of the Sufi tradition in there. So all these discourses are countercultural discourses. In this way, the Ginans became scripture, sacred texts for the Koja community. Of course, we think the Quran and Bible and the Vedas and so on as scriptures, but that's a very limited notion of what is scripture. In the history of religions, it's really communities that decide what is scripture for them. For instance, the Quran wouldn't be a sacred text if there weren't communities that believed that there were sacred texts. The Bible would not be a sacred text unless there were people who believed it, it, it was. So, you can say that the scriptures may be divinely revealed, you know, if people want to claim that they were, but their meanings are humanly constructed. 
So these ginans, because they gave people a fundamental way of looking at the world and also a way of being and a way of knowing, uh, they formed a scriptural role. In a sense, it, they helped them make sense of the world, not only this, the material world, but the spiritual world and also the past and the future. The second part of this episode focuses on the late 1800s and early 1900s. Before the 19th century, Satpanthis, the followers of the True Path, did not identify themselves as Hindu or Muslim. Rather, they considered themselves as members of caste groups, such as Khojas, or Shamshis, or Momnas, or Imam Shahis. But this Satpanthi identity was gradually reformulated with the establishment of colonial rule in the 19th century. The British introduced into the subcontinent European post-enlightenment notions of religion, and people had to pick or identify themselves according to a single religious identity. Interestingly, they didn't see themselves as Hindu or Muslim because those categories didn't make sense to them. This idea that all these different Indian traditions like the Vaishnavite and the Shaivite and the Bhakti and all of this, that all amalgamated and formed Hinduism is a 19th century idea, a product of encounters with Western notions of what religions should be, you know, trying to create a monolith out of all this diversity. Similarly, this notion of Islam as an amalgamation of many, many different interpretations of Islam and somehow lumping them together and say there's one Islam, which didn't actually exist in practice, but it existed in people's mind, was part of this product of the encounter with European post-Enlightenment notions of religion, which are very much based on religion as an identity marker. It's based on this notion that religions are distinctive ideologies and there's no overlap, which is actually quite a false notion because, as we know, a lot of religious traditions are actually connected with each other. You see it in the Quran. The figure of the Prophet Muhammad is actually connected in, in very deep ways with the figure of Jesus and Moses and Abraham and Noah. In reality, we find religious traditions tend to actually incorporate or relate to the past. So they're always expressing their ideas in terms of what, you know, what is familiar to people. So then you can start talking about Jesus as a Muslim figure. And so you can also talk about Rama as a Muslim figure in the same way. So you will find some of these Satpanthis in the 19th and 20th century, identified themselves as Ismaili. Some of them identified themselves as Sunni. Some of them identified themselves as Ithnashari. Some of them identified them as devotees of certain Hindu deities. Uh, some of them classified themselves as followers of Ramdev Pir. 
And it's a very complicated process by which this happened, imposed by the British on the local population through various means such as the census, documentation of population, and determining who's Hindu, who's Muslim, because the idiom of colonial rule was based on religion. Some Khojas became part of the Hindu tradition, while others eventually identified as Muslim. And then they split further into differing schools of interpretation. Sunni, Ithna'ashari, Ismaili, based on whether or not they accepted the Ismaili Imam as their leader. So now the Ismaili Khojas are a single group and the Aga Khan, the Ismaili Imam, having moved from Iran to the Indian subcontinent, begins re-articulating Ismaili Khoja practice and interpretation. So what happens is that once you get this identity emerging of Khoja Ismaili, it becomes necessary to create institutions that are actually going to be part of the network through which the imams then guide the community. So you get this institution building and you get constitutions emerging, defining what is the authority of the imam, the institutions, what are their roles. But it's also a mark of, you know, modernity because you're getting modern institutions developing uh, connected within the religious context that never used to exist. At the same time, Post-colonial India, but also elsewhere in the world in the 20th century, witnessed growing political and religious polarization. This hardening of interpretations meant that the blended worldview of Satpant Ismailism became harder to sustain. And that's another story that Ginans tell. The story of religion as a cultural phenomenon deeply embedded in historical, political, economic, social, literary, and artistic contexts. When you start looking at religion through this lens, you acknowledge that all religious traditions are in a flux, and they're all changing according to the environment that they're in. In that context, Ginans are also re-articulated. Some, like the Das Avatara, or the Ten Avatars, which related to Vishnu and which used to be central to the Satpant tradition, are no longer recited because the understanding of who the Imam is is now conveyed in a more historical framework as a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. You can't separate religious communities with what's happening in societies around them. So the kinds of religious nationalisms that emerged in Pakistan and in India affected not just the Ginans, but the entire society. So you would see names being changed, and you know you had more Arabic and Persian-sounding names. But you'd also see 
in certain uh, forms of devotional poetry, like Kawali, for instance. So you find Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan trying to defend the Kawali in a new framework that's tried to appease these religious conservatives by actually changing the discourse. This is a way of spreading the religion because there's a singing and, you know, uh, clapping and there's music, which emerges from a Sufi context, and it's meant to help uh, spark some uh, feeling of transcendence and connecting with the sacred and divinity and people saying, oh, no, this is an un-Islamic practice. So this adaptation to this kind of religious nationalism that's insisting on one a single yardstick being used to define what is Islamic affects lots of groups. And amongst the Kojas, this meant that you not only changed some of the vocabulary, but you understood the Ginans to be more in terms of how they relate to the Quran. The Ginans mentioned Quran many, many different places, but they, they look at it as a Veda, as a, as a scripture, the last Veda of the present age. So it's connecting it to these Hindu notions of scripture, but saying that the Quran is also like that, and it's a form of knowledge. So the notion of the Quran is Indianized. So there's an awareness that there is a Quran, and there's also an awareness that the teachings of Satpan are coming from the Quran. So then it gets highlighted by people actually trying to look at Quranic verses and connecting them with Ginanic verses, which is not very difficult to do. For example, the story of creation and the angel Azazil refusing to bow down to Adam, which is a Quranic story, but you find it in the Ginans, right? Or this idea that there's a covenant of love between everything created and God, which in Sufi context is called the covenant of Allah. Referring to this Quranic verse, Allah to be Rabbikum, am I not your Lord? That this was something that God said to the uncreated creation, and the uncreated creation said, Bala Shahidna, yes, we witness it. This notion of this covenant between God and all of creation, interestingly, is also found in the in the Ginans. They use a different vocabulary, but it is a concept that's taken from the Quran and then expressed within Ginanic discourse. So this idea that when people start thinking increasingly of the Ginans as kind of commentaries or explanations of the Quran also makes sense because the Ginans actually do talk about the Quran. The rest of the episode continues in just a moment after this message. On behalf of the team at The Ismaili, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to Muslim Footprints. We very much hope you're enjoying this show and would be grateful if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more valuable content in the future. Now, back to the show. In our final section, let's look at the role that Ginans play today.
They may be religious poems that are hundreds of years old, but Ginan's are far from going out of style. In fact, we're seeing a continuous reformulation of them as they align with the times, inside and outside the institutional space, or the Jamaat Khana. So these texts are not the only texts that form people's ideas of what it means to be Ismaili, but they're part of this liturgical uh, function in the Jamaat Khana where people recite them as forms of prayer. You couldn't take a, a Ginan text and put it to Bollywood music. You're supposed to keep it traditional. So there's an attempt to regulate, if you will, the singing of the liturgical text. But then when you go into these non-liturgical areas uh, where individuals are putting up things on the internet, on websites, uh, creating videos of Ginanic texts and so on, you find there there's a lot of experimentation and ways of, of rethinking these traditions within contemporary contexts. There's at least one example of connecting with rap music, you know, the younger generation to try to make it make a tradition that is goes back many centuries relevant to contemporary audiences. You have Ginans being sung uh, in a choir format, especially in the Western diaspora. So what you're finding is that the forms of these Ginans are also being shaped by the context in which they're being recited. And it's very interesting to see what happened to the Ginans during COVID. I think there was a really blossoming of the Ginanic tradition, not only um, you know, people were reciting and paying more attention to them because because they give you a sense of what is real in the world. You know, when people have lost their sense of what's real, how can this happen? And if you can't go outside, then you go inside. You get into that self-reflecting mode, like what does all of this mean? And the Ginans become a very important source of solace and comfort, but also guidance for many people who are familiar with this tradition. Something else that's happening is that Ginans are being co-opted or re-co-opted by the non-Ismaili South Asian community. So we're coming full circle, back to the Ginanic origins as Satpanti texts, the path of the truth. A path that's universal. We talked about how they were part of Satpan, they had these multiple discourses, but all paths lead to the same truth. And those kind of discourses in the Ginans have started to resonate very strongly in the contemporary world where people are seeing increasing polarization and fragmentation uh, along religious lines. People are being targeted because of their, you know, their faith. Uh, and it's not just an intellectual issue, it's become an existential issue. And then you find this discourse of the Ginans, they have this multivalent, polyvalent discourse, which seems to people as very cosmopolitan, very modern. So, you know, what was a sort of a narrowing of the Ginanic identity as Ismaili is now increasingly being broadened because of 
lots of people who are not Ismaili or interested in the Ginans as aesthetic texts. It, just to give you one example, there was a concert at University of Alberta where there was a group called the Satpan Sufis who was performing Ginans, but that group itself was multi-religious. But what was very interesting is that the audience who came from different backgrounds found the Ginans, you know, resonating with their own traditions, especially Indic ones. Some Hindus would say, oh, this is just like the bhajans. And Sikhs would say, oh, this is just like the kirtans and things we recite in the Gurudwara. So people start recognizing that because these are coming from the same cultural matrix and they're using the same cultural symbols and metaphors, uh, same ragas and so on, that actually there is common ground, there's a shared heritage. And so instead of the whole colonial context of people being divided, the Ginans are actually bringing people together. One venture that Professor Asani has worked on is with the Pakistani singer Ali Sethi. Through readings and musical performance, they're bringing to life the works of the best-known South Asian poets from the past. That includes re-establishing the links between poets that today we place in different ideological boxes, but who share the same musical language, metaphors and symbols. Here is an excerpt of Ali Sethi performing a Ginan by the Ismaili Pir Shams and then morphing into a poem by the Sufi poet Shah Hussein.
Let's end by talking about the effect of Ginans on their audience. These Ginans are impactful because they appeal both to the heart and the mind. What poetic knowledge does, if you want to talk about it as just poetic knowledge, is that it fuses the aesthetic with the, with the ethical, the moral, the philosophical, the mystical. Very often we tend to, to differentiate that. We think aesthetic is, you know, something to do with art and beauty and has nothing to do with ethics. But the way these texts work is they're using the aesthetic, you know, the ragas, the beauty of the ragas, to interpret the message, you know, in an aesthetic way and at the same time in a discursive way. So the these ragas in which many of the skinans are sung are meant to... Um, evoke a rasa, a mood in the listener. And that mood then helps embed the teachings of the text in a deeper way. And especially when you have a whole congregation of people singing together the same ginans, people experience something, this whole community being united in recitation and reciting the same text their breaths are then synchronized and they become like one whole because they're singing the same text. The breathing also becomes the same. So you're actually creating a community through recitation. I forget which historian of religion, I think it's Durkheim, but calls it communal effervescence. And that can be a very powerful experience where you can feel that you're transcending the self and you're becoming part of a whole. It's unity, not just by saying the word, but you actually feel it. One story that has often been told is about this individual, uh, Ismail Ganji, who uh, is said to have experienced a radical transformation uh, when he once went to Chamathkana and heard this Ginan, which was about basically saying you really have to watch your good deeds and bad deeds in the world because you're accountable to God. And he happened to be somebody who was, let's say, off the Surat al-Mustaqim at the time. But he heard the Skinan and he just burst out crying. It had such an impact. And then he sought forgiveness for all his sins. And from that day, he became just this model citizen, if you will. So the Nawab of Junagad uh, in Gujarat actually made him the prime minister. So he rose from being nothing to the most respected uh, individual in the state and an upright and ethical person because of his encounter with the Skinan. This is one story that's been documented in many sources, but there are many such stories. I'd love at some point to document all these stories of the impact of these Skinans on people's lives. So it's just to show that this power of these texts, you know, even though, you know, they were written many centuries ago, is still very present today. Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kalima Communications in partnership with the Ismaili. Our theme tune is Mola Mamajan, performed by Black Heat. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, tap the follow or subscribe button and share widely. My name is Aisha Daya and you've been listening to Muslim Footprints. <laughs>